Um, so we're going to say, uh, read Psalm 8 together, and it reads like this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, good morning, everyone. Very good to see you all. Thank you to, to Duncan for leading the service so far. Uh, thank you all for your participation in that quiz at the beginning. When I was a, a young lad, the Milky Way was a chocolate bar. Um, you all managed to get that one, though, which was really super. Um, now, if you haven't met before, my name's Johnny. Uh, I'm the pastor and part of the leadership team here at Hebron. And it is really super to spend some time together this morning. We're going to spend the next few minutes thinking about the psalm uh, that Duncan's just read for us, Psalm 8. Um, before we spend some time on that, though, let's ask for God's help. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Our God and Father, we pray now that you would please help each of us over the coming few minutes to see that majesty as we consider your word together. And so to praise you as we ought. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, I wonder if you've ever been invited to a humanist celebration or event of some kind, a humanist wedding or a humanist funeral being two of the most popular. It's becoming more and more common in Scotland. Apparently, around a quarter of weddings are now conducted as humanist ceremonies, and that number seems to be growing over time. If you're unsure as to to what humanism is... Well, the Humanists International website outlines a sort of statement of belief. There are a number of core tenets to what's understood to be humanism. And those include the idea that humans have a responsibility to respect and to care for one another. That's absolutely core to humanism. People have inherent value, and we ought to protect and to celebrate that value. And secondly... Humanism bases our understanding of the world and of ourselves only on scientifically observable processes and rejects supernatural beliefs. Now, those views are really common in the UK today. It's really the air that many of us breathe. YouGov polling has apparently found that around 5 million people in the UK identify with the label humanist. Personally speaking, they're probably some of the most common views that I would tend to come across amongst my own peers and friends. Perhaps the same is true for you. And in fact, perhaps they're the views to which you would hold. But I just want to ask you to take a brief moment to think about those two ideas side by side. Those core tenets of humanism. The idea that humans are nothing more than the result of a scientific process. A collection of biological materials on the one hand, and that at the same time, we are inherently valuable, that we have worth in and of ourselves. Those two ideas don't sit very neatly side by side, do we? As much as 
we might want them to. Because we know that we are really small. We often feel insignificant in the grand scheme of the world, don't we? And yet at the same time, we have a sense that human life has inherent worth. And if you don't believe me, consider the fact that we get upset when a natural disaster happens on the other side of the world, where lots of people are either killed or harmed, none of whom we might have met. Why do we get upset about that? Well, because people matter. They matter to us. Now, humanism is an attempt to explain both our insignificance as human beings and yet our inherent value. And let me just say this morning that it falls short. But whilst humanism doesn't explain those two sort of impulses of the human heart, well, the Christian faith most definitely does. And we're going to see that this morning. We're going to be thinking this morning about Psalm 8, which is one of the the songs in the Bible. It's a psalm that gives a different explanation of humanity and an altogether more persuasive, and I'm going to argue, a more attractive one than anything you will find anywhere else in the world. Makes sense both of our limitations as human beings, our small and fragile place within the cosmos, and yet at the same time, our inherent value and worth. Because, says the author of Psalm 8, God has made us so. The reason for giving thought to that today, I should say, it isn't to make Christians feel smug about the views we hold, nor is it to, to stick one to the Humanist Society of Scotland. Our reason for thinking on Psalm 8 is the same as the psalmist's reason for writing it. It's that we would give glory to God. That's the idea that bookends the psalm. I wonder if you noticed that. Verses 1 and 9 O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, says the psalmist. Understanding ourselves rightly will result in us giving God glory, praising him for who he is and for how he's treated us. That's our core objective this morning. Now, I've broken the psalm down into a couple of chunks. There are some headings on the screen behind me you should hopefully find helpful as we work through it together. The first of which is... Human beings aren't kings of the world. Again, it would be helpful if you have a Bible to have that open in front of you, either in paper or electronic copy, as we head through this over the next few minutes. Now, it is the summer holidays for some of us, which is perhaps why we're feeling a tiny bit quieter this morning. But it is a good time of year to get out and about, if you're able. I'm guessing more at this time of year than at any other will people spend time at the beach or get out into the hills walking. And I wonder, if you're the kind of person who enjoys getting out like that, if part of the attraction to get into the great outdoors is the sense of perspective that it brings. Perhaps standing beside not just a sea, but an ocean. And feeling the sheer scale of that immense mass of water dwarfing you. Or climbing a hill somewhere if you're feeling a bit more energetic. And getting a sense of the scale of the world as you look down over the landscape around you. See, when we do get outside, when we clap eyes on the world around us, it can leave us feeling pretty small, pretty insignificant, can't it? And as an aside, I do wonder if that might be at least part of why humanism resonates with quite a lot of people in our country. It's it's, it's an attempt to make sense of our feeling that we are tiny. We are a small organism in the middle of a big, wide world. And to that sense we might have of our own place in the world, well, David, who wrote Psalm 8, would want to say yes. 
People are small, infinitesimally so. But not just in relation to the world we live in, in relation to the God who made it. Read with me, verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? I mentioned a moment ago the uh, hills and the oceans, but we can lift our eyes up even further than that, can't we? We can look up even to the skies. In 2016, the Hubble telescope was used to look at a star that was called, bear with me, MACS J1149 plus 2223 lensed star 1. It's a really catchy name. I'm sure you'll agree. It really grabs the imagination. For some reason, they decided to shorten it to Icarus. And Icarus is the furthest star from Earth that human beings have ever seen. It's apparently around 14 billion light years away from the Earth. And I'll be honest and say, I can't even really get my head around quite how far that is, but I'm sure it's quite far. And it's right at the far edge of how far we can see. And yet, whilst we strain our eyes, we strain technology in order to look up at a star like Icarus, well, God, the God of Psalm 8, made it and put it in its place in the sky like you or I might hang a picture on a wall. We might well say with the psalmist, O Lord, how Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Our God is above and beyond all human power and majesty and is more spectacularly glorious than anything we can fully comprehend here and now. All of which leads the psalmist to ask a fairly obvious question. Verse 4 What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? And the reason no answer is given to that question in the psalm is that after all he's just told us, well, the question answers itself. Compared with the galaxies and the oceans and the mountains, compared even more so with the God who made it, we're nothing. We are tiny and insignificant and limited And you see, that's the Bible's explanation for the sense of insignificance you feel as you stare up at a clear night sky or out over an ocean blue. It's that you are tiny. And in terms of scale, you are insignificant, not just in relation to the natural world, but even more so in relation to the God who made it. And yet that doesn't fully address the sense we have of our own place in the world as human beings, does it? Because, yes, on the one hand, we know that we're tiny and small. But we do also have that sense that, as humans, life is valuable. Our lives matter. That's what humanism wants to affirm, I think. It matters for people during a funeral, for example, to see life as having counted for something. Well, you see, the Bible's explanation for that sense we have of the value of human life isn't that we create that value by by how fruitful we are, by even our relationships around us, or that that value just somehow exists. It's that even though we are tiny and limited, that God is mindful of us. He has given us value. And we're shown just how mindful he is, how much he cares, 
in verses 5 to 8 of Psalm 8, that transcendent, high above and beyond all comparison God of verses 1 to 4, stoops to instill his tiny, limited creatures with significance. And we see that under our second heading this morning, but we have been given crowns by the one who is, verses 5 to 9. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, one reason why I think humanism has been so popular in recent years is that it allows us as humans to see value in one another. It gives us a framework by which we can show compassion to people, even when there isn't anything necessarily in it for me. And, and so, for example, the Scottish Humanist Society will be deeply involved in lots of admirable, charitable work with the aim of helping people. But unlike humanism, the Bible gives us a framework, an explanation for why we might want to do that. It says that we do have value, but that that value comes from God himself. The same God whose glory is above the heavens, who hung stars in space like baubles on a Christmas tree, has given glory to us. Verse 5. Yet you have made him, that's mankind, a little lower than the heavenly beings, angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. And that's almost like a poetic commentary on the Bible's account of creation in, in Genesis, where God brought about the whole created order, which was all good, and he crowned it. He crowned that created order by making people. People whom he called very good. People have glory, says David, given to us by the glorious one who made us. And that's not the only thing we were given. Notice, we've also been given dominion. Verse 6. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Now again, that's very much the language of Genesis, isn't it? Where God told the first man, Adam, to fill the earth and subdue it. He gave Adam dominion over the world he had made. And I just want to, to pause there again, and to repeat that process we did just at the beginning of our time together, to hold two ideas together, side by side. Just hold together in your mind verses 1 to 4 and verses 5 to 9. On the one hand, people are nothing. We are dust, verses 1 to 4, which we feel as we stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon or look up at the Cairngorms, and all the more so as we think on the God who made them. And yet at the same time, verses 5 to 9, People have real dignity and value and purpose. Not value and purpose dreamt up by ourselves or based even on what we achieve, but value that's been given to us. And there are multiple implications of that, I think. Firstly, implications for how we engage with the prevailing worldviews in our culture. I read this week about a man called Samuel Beckett, who was an Irish author and playwright. And in the 1960s, he wrote a play called Breath. You know, I call it a play. I'd be pretty unimpressed if I'd paid the full entry fee. It lasts a grand total of 35 seconds. 
think you'd be asking for your money back if you went to that one. There are no human actors in the play. It opens, apparently, with the sound of a baby's birth cry, at which point the lights come on to show a bundle of rubbish spread across a stage. The sound of inhaling and exhaling is played over the sound system as lights come slightly brighter and then get slightly dimmer again. And after 35 seconds, a second human cry is played over the sound system and the lights go out. Now, I'm not sure about you. I won't be rushing out to buy tickets for the play. But it does illustrate why this really matters to us. Even if you've never thought about it before. If you are a random biological accident, the result of scientific processes and nothing more, then breath is your life. Your life is little more than a birth cry, a collection of materials that exist for a little while, followed by a death cry. Now, we know that isn't true to our experience. We know that people are worth something, that our lives are more than a biological accident. Now, humanism affirms that life does matter, affirms that sense of upset we feel at the loss of human life, even of people we've never met before. But you see, the problem is human, humanism can't tell us where that value comes from. If we are nothing but the result of, of random process, if you're nothing more than a biological fluke, then you don't matter. None of us do. But the Bible says you really, really do matter. You matter because the God who hung stars in space made you to matter. He has given us glory, says the psalmist. And so if you're a Christian, let me encourage you not to feel kowtowed by the prevailing views in our culture. It can be very easy to feel so, can't it? You needn't. You have a more coherent and a far more attractive explanation for who we are as people than anything else out there. And if you aren't a Christian this morning, let me just ask you to think on that for a little while, to consider why we have that sense of both our own smallness, but also our own significance. Will you be honest enough to interrogate your own explanation for that? Human value doesn't come from nowhere. It can't have done. The Bible says that it was given to us. That's why we feel the way we do. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. So let me please encourage you to explore that. I'd be really delighted to help. If I could be of any help to you, please speak to me after the service. If I could be of any use. That's the first implication, though. The Bible makes sense of who we are as human beings. And the second implication is that human life really does matter. And that that value isn't contingent on how much we contribute to society. Because it's been given to us. Now, uh, my grandmother is 100 years old. She turns 101 next month. And uh, she's lived a very productive life by all measures. Uh, She was a nurse at ARI for a number of years earlier in her life before having two sons and uh, being very closely involved in the upbringing of her five grandchildren, myself included. Uh, She then worked as a carer for children with profound additional support needs and ended up fostering a girl with acute additional support needs um, who is now a happy and healthy grown-up, against all the odds, really. 
But as she got older, my gran got more forgetful. I know lots of people experience that, I guess, as we get a bit older. But hers went beyond an average kind of forgetfulness, and it got gradually worse to the point where what was initially diagnosed as dementia has now been diagnosed as Alzheimer's disease. And at this stage, her mind has been absolutely ravaged by it. When we go to visit, she can usually just about remember who I am, but it comes as a surprise to her each time I introduce her to Fiona, my wife, that I'm married, despite Gran having been at the wedding 10 years ago and knowing Fiona really well. She forgets that she has great-grandchildren, which comes as a happy surprise each time she meets them. She forgets that her husband, my grandfather, has now died, which is a far less happy surprise. She forgets the sentence that she's just spoken only moments before. Now, she has lived a long and a fruitful life by any measure. But if you were to quantify it objectively, as at today's date, my grand's current contribution to society is absolutely zero. But, says the psalmist, may not look like it, certainly doesn't feel like it as she repeats the same question again and again, or she muddles her way towards the end of a sentence that she's not sure how she started. She has been crowned by the majestic God of all glory with glory and honor. She is inherently valuable. Now, the reason for me mentioning that, I know that's far more personal than I would usually be on a Sunday morning. The reason for me mentioning that is I know others part of this church family whose own family members and who themselves really struggle with the same kind of illness as my grandmother. And you've reason to take heart from that. That all human life from the womb to the grave is inherently valuable and ought to be treated as such, not because of its productivity or because of its contribution to society, but because God gave it value. Now, that has all sorts of implications, doesn't it? It has implications at a policy level, for example, in discussions around the right to life, around abortion and uh, end-of-life care. That I don't get to say one life is worth more than another life. Because God made us. He gets to say what human life is worth. And he says all human life is valuable and therefore ought to be protected. I'm well aware that may be sensitive ground for some of us who may have made decisions in this area in the past that we've come to regret. Let me just say to you, if that is you, our God is gracious and merciful, and you cannot out-sin the grace of the God of the Bible. So please don't leave here this morning feeling hopeless or helpless. Please speak to someone about it if that is you. But it is nonetheless so important to say it, because listen, no one else will. Human life really, really matters. That has massive policy implications. And it has personal implications too. On the one hand, it saves us from the pretense that we are self-made as people. That's a badge of honor in our culture, isn't it? To be self-made. Well, to that idea, David would say no. None of us are truly self-made. You are a tiny and insignificant creature. 
And if you don't believe me, then just pay attention to the night sky. The only reason you matter is that God made you to matter. You aren't self-made, you are God-made. And yet, on the other hand, this idea saves us from trying to manufacture significance or meaning in life. The fact that human beings have been given glory and purpose by the God of glory means that you aren't defined by your achievements in life or by your contributions to society. That you have inherent value and worth because he says you do. Because he's mindful of you. Now, there is a bit of a wrinkle in all that I've just been saying. Because the picture the psalmist paints of the earth in which we live and of our place in it is one of of glory and one of flourishing and notice of human dominion over all things. Verse 6, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. And yet that isn't how it often seems, is it? I remember watching a nature program on TV a few years ago where a group of naturalists went into a jungle in Borneo to do some filming and some exploring. And they set up a sort of jungle camp while they were there. There were tents there for their camera gear. There was a kitchen area and a communal eating area as they stayed there for, for a few days, I think, to carry out their filming. But by the end of their expedition, the camp had begun to look less and less like a camp. Because you see, the animals were moving back in. Uh, they found some, some fire ants in one of the tents, which was a bit of a shock to the, uh, the owner of the tent. And a group of monkeys had set up camp by the kitchen area, which was problematic. They were stealing lots of bananas, apparently. And that's just a tiny and a flippant, if you will, illustration of the fact that this dominion, the dominion which God has given humanity over the created order, it can seem pretty fragile. It can be stronger than that, actually. It seems broken. Natural disasters often seem to have a greater hold in the world than we do. Disease and illness seem to have a pretty good grasp on things too. My grandmother is illustrative of that. And when you watch the news, the world isn't always governed by people exercising good and wise rule over one another, is it? Political tyrants seem to call the shots very often. So is Sam ain't nothing but wishful thinking? Is it a description of, of utopia, of how we wish things were? Well, no. Because in one sense, it explains who we are as human beings in the here and now, made by God, given value by God. But in another sense, it points us much further forward than the here and now. We've already touched on the Genesis creation account where the universe God made was good. And the people God made were, in God's words, very good. But as we read on and we reach Genesis 3, things start falling apart. Humanity rebel against God. We reject his good and right rule. And that has all sorts of horrible consequences. Consequences for the earth itself, which was cursed because of sin. And humanity's whole relationship with the created order was thrown out of joint. Through painful toil, you will eat food from the earth all the days of your life, says God in Genesis 3. A world that was made to produce abundance now produces thorns and thistles. The created order is is out of harmony with people. And humanity's dominion over it isn't exercised as it ought to be. One theologian helpfully, I think, says that human beings are now glorious ruins. That we wear cracked crowns. 
Wonderfully, though, that isn't the end of the story. The author of the book of Hebrews, which is in the New Testament, he quotes these verses from Psalm 8. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 to 8 are a direct lift from Psalm 8, in fact. And in the following verses, he makes sense of why Psalm 8 isn't exactly our lived experience in the here and now. Just listen to what he says. Psalm, sorry, Hebrews 2, verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to humanity. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, we don't see and feel Psalm 8 perfectly in the world around us. We see shadows of it. We feel echoes of it. But not quite the whole reality. And yet we do see Jesus. And in Jesus, says the author of Hebrews, this whole relationship is put right. The entire created order brought under subjection, says the author, to him. And because Jesus died and is now raised and crowned with glory and honor, then if we trust in him, so might we be too. And that means that whilst Sammy tells us about who we are as people, how we're meant to flourish in the here and now, but it also points us forward towards an ultimate flourishing. See, heaven isn't the end goal for Christians. The ultimate destination for God's people isn't a disembodied or a spiritual existence. It's resurrection bodies in a new heaven and a new earth where we will live and reign with him forever. And again, that has important implications for us this morning. Firstly, if you're a Christian, well, that is fuel for our praise of God, that the creator of all things would be mindful of you, would care for you, and not just in his giving you glory and honor as he has done to all people, but in his rescuing you by the death of his son so that you could share that glory, share that honor into eternity. That is just extraordinary news. And it is absolutely worth praising him for. We might well declare with the psalmist, verse 1 or verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And it does have implications too if you wouldn't describe yourself as being a Christian yet. I do hope you've been able to, to see how the Bible makes sense of the world we live in and of your own place within it as a human being. And it does so far more coherently, far more persuasively and attractively than the prevailing view in our culture right now. And it even articulates the sense of longing we still have as we experience of brokenness in the world around us. See, the Bible points us forward to a place where we will live and reign with our creator God for all eternity in a new creation. That is a wonderful, wonderful prospect. And it's a prospect that becomes ours only when we acknowledge that we are part of the problem. That you too have rebelled against your maker. But if you would ask his forgiveness, to turn to him from that rebellion, to trust in and follow him, well, that might be your future too. If you've never done that before, 
let me please encourage you to do so today. Let me lead us in prayer as we come to a close. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we acknowledge before you our creatureliness, that we are limited, and that we have every evidence of our own limitations. And we acknowledge before you that you are not creaturely, you are the creator, the sustainer of all things. And yet we praise you too that you have imbued us, instilled us as people with value, with significance. And not only that, have sent your son to rescue us for eternal significance. Help us, please, to have confidence in you. When other worldviews around us might make us falter. Help us to value human life because you have given it value. And help us this morning, Lord, to rejoice in and praise you for your goodness towards us. And for any here who've yet to do that, who've yet to trust in you, would you please persuade them of the coherence of your plan for all humanity? Persuade of your own rejection, of our own rejection of and need for you. And help them please to turn and to trust in you. That they would know this future, this glorious future, to be theirs too. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.